In our study of the Apostles' Creed, we come now to the phrase that raises more eyebrows than any other, with the Holy Catholic Church a close second. He descended into hell. What exactly does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? If you need, if you're kind of an ADHD person, you need a way to keep your mind focused, try counting how many times the pastor can say the word hell in one sermon. In three decades as a pastor, I don't know that I've had a really good short answer to the question, what did what do we mean when we say he descended into hell? So today I'm going to give it a try because from now on, when anybody asks me that question, I not only will have my one paragraph, I'm going to say, here's the sermon I preached on it. Go read this sermon and you'll know. So in context, the Apostles' Creed is trying to answer the question, where was Jesus between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning? Where was he on Saturday? So we've got crucified, dead, and buried last week. Uh, and the third day, he rose again from the dead next week. So today, we're on that in-between. Where was Jesus in between Friday and Sunday? So are you okay with the answer? He descended into hell. It's kind of related to the question, where will you be after you take your last breath and before your resurrection? And are you okay with the answer, I'm going to hell? So part of the problem is with language. So first of all, the word descended sort of raises a cosmology that most of us go like, I'm not sure I buy into the fact that hell is below us and heaven is above us. Uh, We use the words metaphorically. In fact, I would argue that the Bible itself uses the words metaphorically, that, you know, uh, talking about hell below and heaven above is not literal. The greater linguistic problem is the word hell. So we use the word hell maybe more than you realize, than you think about, and we use it in three ways. Number one, we use it in the literal way, which is a place of torment for the condemned, and oftentimes we're talking about eternal punishment, a place of separation from God. Second way we use the word hell is as profanity. So I... I hope that most of us avoid it most of the time, but when someone says, go to hell, or what the hell, this is profanity. And we're, it, we're taking a word that, is, that should be sacred and mean something profound and powerful, and we're just using it carelessly. That's what profanity means. So the third way we use the word hell is as a rather common metaphor for something that is extreme, usually extremely negative. So all hell broke loose or rush hour was hell, or that was a vacation from hell, or my life is hell, are all ways in which we're using it really as a metaphor, and you, we can argue about whether that's profanity or not, but let's just, that it's usually, we're not talking about literally a place of torment. And the, the irony for me is that the word hell is even used positively. You might be watching the Masters Golf Tournament say that was a hell of a shot. That's a good thing? One of my favorite stories is in my last church, uh, there was uh, a, a man who, let's just say he gave me hell as his pastor. First year, uh, he kind of laid low, and when I got to the end of the first year, he said, can I talk with you? And it was on a Friday, which is my day off, and I said, okay, Joe, let's go talk. And basically, he said, everything is going wrong in this church, and he, and he, and he led up to Uh, And you just pick all the people that are on the consistory. I said, I haven't even met with a nominating committee. And he said, why not? You ought to be more involved in these things. 
Did you get that? Okay, well, anyway, so this guy, you know, knew how to give a pastor a hard time. So I preached his funeral, and as I do with funerals, I preach funerals about grace. And his son came up to me after the funeral, and he said a very memorable compliment that has maybe only been repeated one other time. He said, you're a hell of a pastor. That's a good thing, to be a hell of a pastor? So this is the problem. We use the word hell in different ways. Uh, The Bible also uses the word hell in different ways, and the Christian faith has used the word hell in different ways. If you want to find out what the Bible says about hell, first of all, you need to pay attention to which version of the Bible that you're reading. Because you'll find in the King James Version and other older versions that if you, if you look up the word hell, you'll find it maybe 50 to 75 times in older versions. You will only find it 15 or 20 times in the New International Version. It's not because we've become soft on hell. The reason is that there are different ideas of hell. And the King James Version and other translations would take the Hebrew word sheol or the Greek counterpart Hades and translated hell, but in reality, neither word has a whole lot to do with punishment. Hades is a synonym for death or the grave. Sometimes it just refers to the afterlife. The Bible seems to suggest there are two sections or compartments of Hades, and one is a good place and the other is a bad place. So if you remember the story Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man, they kind of even can communicate to one another because they're both in Hades, but one is in torment and the other is in a place that's called Abraham's bosom or sometimes paradise. So if you can think about this word Hades actually um, describing two different places, one of them extremely good and the other one extremely bad, you get the idea that it's not just as easy to translate it with the word hell. But Greek also has a different word for hell, which is Gehenna, and Gehenna is a place of torment and fire and punishment. And so it's usually referring to eternal punishment, and almost all English translations will take the word Gehenna and use that as hell appropriately so. So back to the question. What does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? Does it mean that he suffered Gehenna, that he suffered torment when he paid for our sins, or that he went to the place of the dead, Sheol or Hades between Friday and Sunday. And if he went to the place of the dead, what did he do there? What do you do when you hang out in, you know, Hades for a couple of days? Based on the passages, some passages in First Peter, some people believe that he went there and he preached to those who had died before, maybe believers and unbelievers, and gave them an opportunity to believe in him. There are problems with that, but that's one way to look at this text. So with all this complexity, like the the next question is, does all of this really matter? And I'm going to say yes and no. No, because this is precisely one of those areas where Christians have not come to consensus through the generations, and therefore it is almost the definition of a non-essential. If Christians who love Jesus and believe the Bible can't agree on what it means, then it probably is not as important as other other critical doctrines. Uh, also, the word wasn't the phrase wasn't even added into the creed until about the year 650. It was the last place that the creed, you know, had an uh, an addition that stuck. And so many early Christians never said when they said the creed, they didn't say he descended into hell. So it can't be that important. But my answer is also yes, because even though it was late, 
Christians have been saying this for 1,500 years. And one of my pet peeves is when we think we know better than all of those who went before us. So if this was important to believers for 1,500 years, shouldn't we at least try to understand what it is that it means when we say Jesus descended into hell? So as you know, my, my um, preaching, it's not just a preaching preference. My preaching conviction is that it's not about my latest theological musings much less political or some other kind of musings. It's about the Word of God. So I want to preach on a scripture text, and I chose Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. This passage connects Old and New Testament perhaps better than any other passage in the Bible, but especially in the Old Testament. And after we take a look at it, I'm going to come back to this question of what it means that Jesus descended into hell. So oftentimes we talk about Isaiah 53, and it's kind of an unfortunate chapter division because the the poem begins where Pastor Lori began in her reading in chapter 52, verse 13. It's the poem of the suffering servant, and it includes five different stanzas of three verses each. This is the final of three servant songs that appear in the book of Isaiah, and this one sort of culminates... Uh, brings the grandest, most glorious vision of how God will provide hope for the hopeless. So as you can imagine, Christians read this passage differently than Jews do. Jews, in case you're curious, see the suffering servant as the nation of Israel. I'm not going to spend my time today arguing that point. I just want to mention that that's true and that I'm going to treat the text the way the overwhelming consensus of Christians treat it, and that is this is talking about Jesus. This is a prophetic description written centuries before about Jesus, and you're going to be um, shocked at how much parallel there is between Isaiah 53 and what we read in the Gospels actually happened to Jesus. So the original historical context of this poem is a message to Israel in exile. If you know the story, what happened is uh, over a series of, of years, even centuries, Israel seemed to move farther and farther away from their commitment to the one true God. And when their idolatry became so heinous and their practices became so heinous, so heinous that God actually said, I'm going to allow Babylon to come in and destroy you. They will destroy your temple. They will destroy your city of Jerusalem. They will destroy your nation. They will destroy your hope. So what we're talking of, the context is we're talking about people in exile who are aware now of the depth of God's wrath toward their sin and the consequences of that sin. They are at the worst place historically in their nation's history and God has a word for them. And the, the whole latter part of the book of Isaiah from chapters 40 to 66 is a word of hope, but the hope seems to really rise dramatically here in chapter 53. So I, I, some of this is very familiar. I don't want it to be too familiar to you today. So I'm going to ask you to, to think and, and hear this differently. And because of that context, I'm going to ha- have you go to somewhere maybe you don't like to go. I want you to go to your worst self. I want you to go to the moment that you were furthest from God, not because, you know, you felt God is not answering my prayer, but because you were turning away from him. You knew what was right and true, and you were deliberately turning away from that. You knew you were in the grip of some kind of horrible addiction to sin, and it was destroying you. I want you to go to that moment in your life when you felt the most guilt and shame 
And maybe for some of you that's an easy place to go because there's one time in your life or one place in your life where that was very true. For others, it may be not quite so dramatic. But I need you two to tear off all the defenses and excuses and I need you to own the worst of your heart. I need you to, to feel your pride and your lust and your envy and your anger and your baggage and your broken relationships, the way you've harmed others, your greed. I need you to think about the people you avoid. You just don't like to be with them. You've said to them, I can forgive, but I will never forget. I don't want to be around you. I need you to go to the injustices that you know exist in the world and you've done nothing about them. I need you to go to your racism. I need you to go to your condescension toward others who you think are not as bad a sinner as you are. I need you to go to your worst place when we come to Isaiah 53 because that's where they are and this is where this message is targeted. And typically what I like to do is I like to go verse by verse or sort of, you know, expository preaching. Like, let's go line by line through this. I want to do something a little bit different today. I'm just going to read it for you again. But I'm going to read it for you in a paraphrase that I wrote because I needed to be able to capture the power of these words in a different way. So before we go to hearing Isaiah 53 again, I just want you to close your eyes and take yourself back to the, that worst of you, past or present. And I need you to enter into a time of confession before God to name some of that in silence before him. Pay attention to your God. My servant will flourish. You'll have to look up to see him. Lofty, glorious, higher than high. At first, he was lower than hell. Many people looked down at him, disgusted. He was literally defaced. Those who saw him didn't think he was human. My servant exploded over the nation, stunning kings into silence. Now they were seeing the unimagined, understanding the unheard. Who would ever have believed this? It's outrageous. It's far-fetched. The power of our God is the only explanation. God's biceps on display. Fragile at first, the servant sprouted as a scrawny seedling from hell on earth. We didn't look twice at him. No beauty, no dignity, no magnetism. We despised him passing over this nobody disabled by pain and heartache. We hid our faces, patronizing this pitiful form. We thought him nothing. Do not miss this. He was buckling under the weight of our pain and heartache. We thought God was pummeling him, giving him hell for his own evil. But he was speared for our rebellions flattened for the blame that was ours. He suffered hell to give us peace. His flogging healed us. We've all roamed around like clueless sheep doing our own thing, and our God has heaped on his servant the hell we deserved. He was exploited and humiliated like a slave, but never protested, 
Like a sheep, he was butchered and sheared, but kept as quiet as they do. Falsely caged and judged, no one at that time cared when he was carted off. Hacked from the land of the living, plagued for my people's rebellions. He shared his end with criminals and a rich man. We didn't understand. He had never harmed anyone with his hands, his heart, or his mouth. Our God delighted in crushing and harming his servant as a guilt offering. He will see descendants. He will live again. He will do our God's desire. After his soul faces hell, he will be satisfied with knowing God. My faultless servant will make others faultless, bearing their punishment. I, your God, will honor and reward him because he stared down hell. He entered the fraternity of sinners and reconciled rebels to God. I have no more words to describe who Jesus is and what he did than those. And somehow, honestly, it no longer seems as important that we pin down the precise meaning of he descended into hell. It's only a phrase that we use to describe the indescribable. Whatever the word means in the creed, hell on earth, death in the grave, a temporary holding place, torment, eternal separation from God. What matters is that Jesus took that for us. So let me go back to the question that I raised a few minutes ago. Where was Jesus between Friday afternoon and Saturday mo- and Sunday morning? I believe that Jesus took our Gehenna, our, our eternal punishment, when he was on the cross. So when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing our hell in the sense of separation from God. As an eternal person, he could bear eternal punishment while on the cross. As God, he could suffer for the sins of the whole world. When he cried out, it is finished, his Gehenna was done. But then what? So I believe he went to Hades, to the section of Hades for those who had died in the faith. I believe he joined Lazarus, as in the poor man and Abraham, and Moses, and Joshua, and David, and Elijah, and Isaiah there. I believe it's what he meant when he said to the cross, today you will be with me on paradise. Remember, part of Hades is paradise. That's why the word hell in the creed is confusing. But what did he do when he went to Hades, when he went to the paradise part of Hades? I don't know. But this, I believe, that was the end of Hades. It was the end of the paradise compartment of Hades. He put an end to that waiting for the righteous. So all the saints who had died before had to wait, but no more because Jesus emptied out Hades. How did he do it? I don't know. The Bible's not clear. But remember that the whole idea of waiting is a dimension in time. It's where we live. It's not in the other side anyway. But for all of those who, who like had that dimension or those who loved them and knew them had that dimension of we have to wait before we can actually go to heaven, the one thing I know for sure is that the waiting never has to happen again because Jesus went there. He took Hades for us, and what he says then, from that point on, that point on, the New Testament deals with this topic very differently. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. He went there, but he wasn't left there. And from then on, Paul will say, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. 
So what Jesus was doing was he's saying, like, I'm going to end this whole thing about a waiting game in Hades. I'm going to go there. I'm going to liberate the paradise that's there, take them to be with my Father, and from now on, when you die, you go straight into the presence of the Lord. Your soul goes there as it waits for the coming of the Lord and for the resurrection. So what do we mean by saying that Jesus went to Hades? We mean that he went... What do we mean by saying that Jesus descended to hell? We mean that he went to Hades so that we don't have to. He had already been in Gehenna on the cross, so after that... He went and took that one last aspect of our hell. He had endured hell on earth by being one of us. He had endured Gehenna on the cross, and now he endures Hades. And am I absolutely sure that I'm right about that's where Jesus was? No. But I live with the full confidence that Jesus did absolutely everything necessary to provide for our salvation so that we never have to fear hell, any aspect of hell that you can imagine. And so now we gather around this table, the table of the Lord. And as we do so, we come with a full confidence and assurance. There's no fear when we gather around this table. There needs to be, there needs to be a recognition that we deserve hell, but there also needs to be a fresh embrace that it's all been taken care of, paid in full. We're good. We can come to this with the confidence, not in our own righteousness, but that Jesus has done everything necessary to make us white as snow, to make us clean and pure, to make us worthy of this table. Let us pray together.